Hello, I'm your host, Vlad Yunusov. This episode is supported by my law practice. Once in a while, I record the show for you. I love it, but my day job is commercial litigation, and I've been doing it for 12 years. I'd like you to know that your referrals are safe with me. You can find my contact information on my website at lotzio.ca. Thank you very much, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Unisoft question. Today, my guest is Cynthia Keel, chair of Learners LLP in Toronto and London, Ontario. Hello, Cynthia. Good afternoon. It's really great to have you. I, I think we met in October at the University of Toronto event, at the same event where I met your partner, Earl Cherniak who was a guest on the show, one of the more popular interviews and a really interesting guy, really interesting lawyer, person, a legend, I think. And uh, the thing is that you're also becoming a legend. Oh, I was yeah. going to say that, you know, <laughs> please don't weigh me against Earl because I'm afraid I'm going to lose that popularity contest. Um but I, you know, I, I like to say learners makes legends, but Earl is onto himself. So he's a class onto himself, most definitely. He is. But I think you also are in a category of your own. Thank you. I want to congratulate you, first of all, on your selection as a chair of learners, effective of January 1st, 2023, if I'm not mistaken. That's right. Thank you. Okay. So that... That is a powerful role. It's a powerful place to be in a legal profession in uh, this country. Uh, first of all, tell me briefly about uh, this role. What is the responsibility of a chair of learners? Are you going to tell people what to do? You know, are you going to run things? Are you going to be the CEO? Or what What are you going to Are you going to be the queen of learners? Well, and we'll see whether or not we can get to queen status um, other than in my own household. I've still been working on that for quite some time. So um, I'm really excited, actually, about the chair role. It's a um, I've had a number of people congratulate me on becoming managing partner. And I say, no, I'm actually the chair of the firm. And there is a distinction in our office. We uh, we have a uh, three part executive committee. We have managing partners in both London and Toronto. And uh, if you've read anything about um, our firm and one of the significant aspects of um, the executive committee right now is that we're an all female leadership team. Yola Ventresca, who's a firecracker in our London office, Anne Spafford, who's probably the person I'm most afraid to be cross-examined by in our Toronto office, um, are have already been on the executive committee, and I, I take over the chair role. Uh, and the chair role, unlike kind of day-to-day -day management of the offices, which falls to our managing partners, the purpose of the chair role is to set a, a broader um, strategic vision uh, for the firm and then work with uh, the managing partners, the partners, uh, the associates, the staff on the implementation of that strategic vision. And that can take a whole host of um, 
th that can involve a whole host of things um, in terms of succession planning, lateral hires. How big do we want to be? Uh, what kind of work do we want to do? How much do we want to spread? Because we do have offices in the uh, you know along the corridor between London and Toronto, including a, um, some growth happening in Kitchener Waterloo in particular. Um, and so you know it's a very exciting thing for me to think about um, the big picture and the next. 15, 20 years of a firm that I've been with my entire career. So it's exciting and daunting, to be honest. There's a lot of daunting too, but it's pretty exciting. Yes. You spent your entire career at Learners, correct? I have been. Yeah. I articled here in 1998. So you had a chance to see Learners for over a long time span. So you know Learners past and you know learners present your job right now one of your jobs is to determine learners future Absolutely. can you can you talk a little bit about the past the present and the future where uh, learners was we learned a little bit about that from earl cherniak in that excellent interview that he gave also please talk about where learners is today and where you see learners in the future i mean i, I know it's a work in progress that's why you were selected but uh, maybe you can lift the curtain a little bit sure so you know and, and you did speak to earl who is uh fundamental to the development of um learners in london uh although it, you know it started in 1929 and earl didn't exactly start on day one um but he did start not there the long after with call of the bar in 1960 um and started off doing kind of um work for people who needed a lawyer who may not always get representation elsewhere and and one of the things that's a real proud thing about our history is when earl would have no doubt told you is that the time that he um joined the firm and certainly when sam and mayor learner started the firm there wasn't a lot of opportunities for um jews to work anywhere uh in law um and there's been a long time of mentality in our firm from then that what we want is excellent lawyers uh, we want people who are uh, committed to the service of our clients um, and that we have a long history of serving our communities um, because that's our birth. That's part of the the, you know, uh, the very, you know, genetics of our firm, the DNA of our firm. Um, Earl then helps develop the Toronto office. I was a lawyer, I believe, 23 in Toronto. We're over 50. It ebbs and flows in Toronto. Um, I think we're just over 130 between the two offices, and we've got a few people in our Kitchener-Waterloo office as well. And there's been some growth along, as I say, along that corridor as part of a de uh, deliberate recognition that um, there are uh, excellent uh, corporate clients and other individuals um, who, who, you know, fantastic businesses who aren't resident necessarily in the uh, immediate GTA, who who also are deserving of amazing representation. And fortunately, we already found that there were some great lawyers in those communities who who have now joined joined us, and we're continuing to do that. Um, we've always been full service in London. Um, in Toronto, where I used to say we're pretty close to full service litigation, uh, meaning we do almost everything other than criminal. Um, and among the things that I am most pleased about is um, the breadth and depth of work that we do out of the Toronto office. Um, I obviously am, um, am representing London office as well, and I, I don't have the same degree of familiarity, although I'm certainly learning in my new role as chair. 
Um, but having grown up in the Toronto office, I love the fact that every day the people that I come in contact with are bound together by a common love of advocacy um, a, and a real desire to help clients, um, individuals on um, particular issues, uh, as well as corporate clients on really sophisticated deals and everything in between. Um, and so it's a real honor to do work with people who are passionate about what they do. And certainly, you know, that's a common theme from our past uh, and certainly our present. What does our future hold? Um, I don't really see our future ho um, holding, a, you know, ending up being that we're going to be a, you know, thousand uh, lawyer firm with offices in Dubai. Uh, that's never been what we've intended to do. We will be doing some growth uh, naturally, internally. Uh, many of us, I am not unique of being somebody who's been with the firm forever. Um, we, we invest in our people. Uh, we invest in our staff. We also invest in our lawyers. We grow them from within. That's going to continue to happen. And one of the things I've said uh, as being um, one of the things I want to make sure that people know about learners is that we have amazing lawyers of all vintages. Sometimes when you end up with someone uh, with a number of senior lawyers, um, the, the perception is that lawyers in years kind of uh, 10 to 20 or more are kind of like the bench strength. You know, that's that's your bench strength. And what I would say, um, people like that in our firm aren't your bench strength. They would be the starting five on any other play, uh, on any other team. Uh, we have people with a lot of experience doing complex corporate deals and high-level advocacy in first chairs. So, um, Part of that strategic vision is making sure that people understand what we offer to them in terms of actual experience and depth of experience among people who at other firms may not, may not, and I don't know, I've never been anywhere else, may not have that same level of experience. So are you I saying- I a lot of sport analogies too, Pulat. I was, <laughs> was going to <laughs> say so many sport analogies, but then I held my tongue. <laughs> uh, I love the sport analogies. Uh, I, I need to learn more of them. I recently went to a Leafs game for the second time in my life. Uh, so are you saying that young lawyers or junior lawyers will have professional opportunities at learners sooner than normal or usual in the profession, such as first sharing at trials, uh, handling their own files and so on? So I'm always hesitant to say relative to other where in the profession, my experience and knowledge of what else is happening in the profession is based on what people tell me because I've never been anywhere else. So I can tell you, though, what my experience was. Uh, my experience was that I was second chair of a trial in my first second first into second year of practice um, that I did my own corporate commercial litigation trial as first chair in my fourth year of practice that I did my first appeal in my fifth year of practice. Um, and that I have, um, and I don't think my, my opportunities are unique. Are they different? For sure. If you talk to someone like Earl, he would say, I was in, you know, in my first, second year, I was in court every single day because you, know, you would do like three trials a day. Like it was very different. He's doing some criminal work as well. Um, and that's not the same. When I articled, I, I argued 13 contested motions. You can't get 13 contested motions on the list right now. The courts are overwhelmed with demand. Um, so it is different. But I was fortunate to sit in a review, and I won't tell you the person's name, of one of our amazing star associates today. Um, and she runs some of my files in her third year. 
She does the contact with the client. When we get to the hearing, she will be doing first chair and I will be the one sitting in the back. And it is important that we give people those opportunities. No one develops in this practice unless they've been given opportunities. And when people say, how did you become firm chair? What did you do? Because people believed in me, gave me a chance. And that's what I think is um, really important to, as I say, it's part of the, it was part of the DNA here, um, but it's really important and something that I think is, is necessary for um, the long-term, for the long-term of our profession. And certainly it's something that, that I think is essential to our firm. Weren't you scared to do contested motions and so many of them when you were an articling student? I remember the gut-wrenching feeling. How did you do that? Tell me. Um, yeah, I was scared. I'm still scared now. Uh, no, you're not scared. I don't think court. you're scared. Are you kidding me? You know, I look, I'm looking at the list of your reported decisions. I'm looking at the list of your unreported decisions. I'm looking at the list of everything that you did. And I just, I can't, and then I'll look at you and I see, I don't know, a 35 year old woman and, <laughs> and I can't, I can't, I can't believe it. How did you do all of this? And, uh, do you know how to stop uh this the, these terrible butterflies i don't want to call them butterflies but uh, i've I heard from the judiciary a few times that uh mid-career not even junior lawyers mid-career lawyers avoid trials because they never uh, have done a trial and they're just scared of going to trial so they settle in most cases settle one of the reasons most cases settle is because sometimes on both sides lawyers never did a trial a, a commercial uh, or civil trial so, but you did so many trials, you did so many appeals. Also, the variance of, of okay. industries and, and practice areas is just mind-boggling. Of course, part of this is learners, because you told me this is learners DNA. You did you did a lot of things under the sun, and you were giving a lot of opportunities to do things early. But I need to know your secret. Tell me your secret, how you did so much over so many uh, different areas with such breadth. I can't wait. Just please share. <laughs> well, first of all, I am sincere when I say I still have the butterflies in my stomach. Um, I still get quite anxious. I don't necessarily sleep well the night before, but I'm not sure it's entirely fear as much as part of it is excitement. I mean, I really love being a litigator. And one of the things I have been telling people when they say, are you giving up your practice once you become chair? I'm like, absolutely not. I'm passionate about what I do. There's no way I'm giving that up. Um, you know, will that mean I have a few less hours of sleep at night? Uh, maybe. Um, but I also think it's important to just uh, sidetrack from that is that if you're going to lead a group of lawyers who practice law, you better practice it. Uh, number one. And number two, if you want to have a strategic vision that's about your clients, you better understand your clients. And so it's essential to keep practicing in my view. So, I, you know, what is my secret? Um, you know, no one ever told me I had to choose. So I kept on doing, you know, it's more like no one ever stopped me. So, you know, why didn't you specialize? Because no one told me I had to, and I was having fun doing a whole bunch of different things. Um, and, you know, uh, how did I get all these, you know, yes, learners gave me opportunities. Why did I take them? Uh, if you know anything, if you read anything about me personally, I'm a uh, youngest daughter of three of a rural farmer. My parents had you know, in a traditional family had three girls on a farm um, and we were never expected to do anything but succeed. My parents just thought, you know what, these girls can do anything. 
And so I kind of grew up with the mentality that I could do anything. And until someone told me I couldn't, I was going to keep on with that mentality. It makes it pretty easy. Um, and so I say, I owe a lot of credit to the people who never told me I couldn't. And so, you know, maybe I have a false sense of confidence as a result of that. But it, it does make it easier if you have people who believe in you. Well, let's talk about uh, some specifics a little bit. Sure. And- uh, I, I'm sure that you know, all of our audience, most of our audience are litigators. Uh, a lot of our audience are judges. So I'm really curious about the life cycle of a file in your uh, custody or in sure. your possession. So uh, let's take a, a bird's eye view from the moment a file lands on your desk. First of all, how does it happen? Maybe there is no physical desk. Is it an email <laughs> usually? What is it? Nothing nothing uh, specific, just a general discussion, a bird's eye view of a life of a file on Cynthia Keel's desk. Sure. So because of the nature of the way our firm is organized, um, and I'll focus on my commercial litigation practice, um, most of the work that comes in um, is on a referral basis. I do have some repeat clients. Uh, you know, let's be honest, business people don't want to be repeat clients of litigation lawyers. Um, you know, we're, we're a loss leader in many <laughs> circumstances, and I'm acutely aware of that. So most of it is, is uh, word of mouth. Um, I have been very um, lucky to have met people who have confidence in me and my ability to handle files for them. So um, I do occasionally get contact directly from uh, corporate clients, but by and large, I get contacted by lawyers who are asking me to handle a case um, that they either can't handle or because they're conflicted or otherwise. So that's the the vast majority of my work that comes in. um, And then I have some repeat clients. Usually it comes in the email and assuming there's no conflicts, I do initial calls myself, um, but from a business person's perspective, I'm not always the person who should be doing the day-to-day management of it. I'm very, you know, I've got some really great um, associates and younger partners who assist me on my files. So, you know, it it comes in. I like to have face-to-face, Zoom to Zoom Mm -hmm. (laughs) uh, meetings with people at the outset uh, in my commercial files part of that is getting the facts and part of it is getting an idea of what people want and then you know what litigation often has a mind of its own so you know think about it I like to sit down I like to strategize you know it's a real pleasure to be able to make time to think about a file and think about what the right way to go is um, develop plan present it to the client and the way we go um, what happens thereafter is you know a confluence of the influence of of client demands, opposing counsel, you know, uh, judges, uh, mediators, etc. So, um, but that's basically how it comes to me and my approach to it. Um, and I keep on saying I'm really fortunate. I'm going to stop saying that, um, not because I'm not, but because it's uh, it's kind of like somebody who starts every sentence with yes or um. um but as I do that, but what I say is there are people that I work with. And at one point I was those people, the file would land on Earl Cherniak's desk or another partner's desk. And he would say, this is what I'm thinking. Can you run with it? Now I get to be at this point in my career. It lands on my desk. I think about it. I turn to somebody else and say, Hey, can you help me with this? And can you run with it? Um, And that's, and it's a weird evolution in your career to, to, to do that switch. So. Well, delegation feels good. Doesn't it? (laughs) <laughs> it it feels like a superpower because it ex- extends your own abilities with the abilities of your talented associates and partners. But I was curious that after 
about this after you uh, let uh, somebody else run with the file uh, you shared some of your views on the file you gave some direction to the file and the person ran started running with the file when do you return to the file do you return to the file when it's when the trial is scheduled or do you return to the file occasionally when uh, high stakes issues are raised so what i would say is i never leave the file so someone might be running with the file, but um, depending on the level of person. So if it's my first or second year associate, they might be in my office quite quite, op quite often. I say my associate, a first or second year associate of learners, they might be in my office quite often bouncing ideas. If it's a more, uh, you know, one of our uh, partners who's junior to me, I, I may not see that file as often, um, but I don't ever leave the file. And, and for me, I think one of the values that you add as you get more senior is the fact that you've seen a lot. And so I ask people to keep me apprised of what's going on because I may have seen this before. I may have a strategic decision that they may not have been contemplated just by virtue of the fact that I've been around. Um, and so, you know, you never leave the file. What you do is you give people opportunities to spread their own wings, knowing that they've got a safety net. And as you've be as you become more senior, you, you know, you become the safety net more often than you are the person who needs the safety. So um, that's my own view of it. Um, and I'm really careful. And, and I, I tell clients up front, this is how I'm going to staff the file. I am ultimately the responsible person. That means I take responsibility for the decisions that are being made. But you're in really good hands with my colleague who is going to do the things that are within their purview keeping me fully apprised. And that's how, you know, that's how you extend the hours in your day. But it also, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, it's really exciting. I did an appeal recently with one of my younger partners. And it's really exciting when someone that you've worked with for years is doing something well in front of your eyes. So it's personally very rewarding to delegate and to competent people. And I think it's necessary, quite frankly, for succession. It's also necessary for clients. And you know, it, this is a business. Clients don't always need to pay me to do everything. Um, and so there's lots of good reasons why you want to do that. Well, you're quite on top of the uh, recent director from uh, uh, the recently retired Chief Justice Straffy and Associate mm -hmm. Chief Fairburn about involving junior lawyers in um, advocacy. So uh, kudos to you for that. But I'm also wondering, when you described the life of a file, you to told me a lot about the involvement of junior lawyers. Is this also how you train them? Is this also how learners trains its lawyers by simply involving them in files and by giving uh, giving them feedback from senior lawyers like you? For sure. And, you know, that's part of it is that um, when people do, I do give them feedback and both informally and informally. Um, but as some of our students and associates can tell you, um, you rarely get invited to do something with me that is not a forced learning experience. So I did a I did a two week hearing during uh, COVID. So it was over Zoom with one of my colleagues and we had a student who's now one of our associates sit in. Um, to take notes, to do research on the fly, et cetera. And every day I would uh, turn to him at the end of the day and say, tell me what you learned today. And, you know, I'm sure that the first day that was fun. And after that, it became a bit of a, you know, you know, I'm sure all day he was thinking, what am I going to have to tell her today? But now when he sits in on something, I, I don't actually always ask him, tell me what I say, tell me what I could have done better. Tell me what, mm -hmm. tell me what hit and what didn't hit. Tell me, you know, or I'll sit at lunch and say, how are they reacting to me over Zoom? And mm -hmm. so there is that I rely on, first of all, it's mentoring and I want them to be learning and being able to consciously think about things. 
But as they get more senior, I want them to, to understand that I need them in that way too. We are mm-hmm. not, I'm not particularly um, good at judging whether or not I'm good at something or not. And I'd like to think mm-hmm. I'm great at everything. It's not true. I'm a horrible cook. Um, but I, you know, it's nice to have him say, you know what, I think this point is, is not resonating. Or I think you lost them on this. And if mm-hmm. you involve them from the beginning, you give them the confidence to give you back that feedback. And so it becomes, mm-hmm. you know, it, it becomes reciprocal feedback and it's beneficial for everybody. And certainly I think it's good for the clients. You mentioned a little bit about your backstory. You grew up on a farm, that alone, I guess. I'm not sure if it's that uncommon in Ontario, but it's quite special to a lot of people in Toronto who weren't even born here, like me, for example. So tell me a little bit more about your parents, who they were, what they did, were they farmers? Uh, You already told me that they wanted to be good at everything. Why they wanted (laughs) to be good at everything. Talk a little bit about your, let's, let's pay some respect to your parents. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, So they are generational farmers. Sorry, I'm actually, that, that upsets me. I'm sorry. My dad recently died. So this is hard. I'm sorry. It's okay. Just give me one second. Yes. Um, I wasn't expecting that. And I wasn't expecting this either. So just give me one second. He didn't yeah. recently die. He died in April 2020, but I am so beholden to them. Yeah. Um, uh, my mom is the most important person in my life besides my kids. My husband too. Uh, he's amazing. Um, <laughs> uh, but what my parents did, so that we grew up in rural Ontario. Uh, they had a beef cattle farm. My dad was a third generation. His um, his father had immigrated with his parents from Germany when he was five years old. Um, it's hard work, you know, um, for people who are, uh, we're, I'm from Eastern Ontario. Um, you know, it, it's, these aren't large like uh, agricultural um, farm properties where these, this is like day-to-day labor to get by. Um, I never had a sense of that growing up. My parents always gave us, what we needed. Um, and I never had a sense that it was hard for them to do that uh, because they were so uh, conscious of um, of providing um, for their family, which was amazing. Uh, but growing up, with, I had two older sisters. Um, my mom uh, had her hands full, no doubt. Um, I was by far the worst. I often say that by the time they got to me, they were probably like, oh gosh, we've given up uh, parenting. Um, But one of the things that they, you know, one of the things I remember my dad talking to some of his younger farming colleagues um, about uh, men. And I remember one of his friends actually had a daughter and was just like, I was, and actually was very blunt about him, said I was hoping for a son. And my dad's like, why? Women can do whatever. My girls have done whatever I've asked of them and more, and they're going to do whatever they want in their lives. And so it was you know, that's really special as a gift. And it's not unique to farming family, but it's a really special gift from to have from parents. I do apologize how, how emotional I got um, at the outset. Um, but no, it, so it was, it was really, it was really amazing, you know, uh, to have that growing up. Um, my the other thing my parents did is they also taught me about the importance of having fun. We had a lot of fun. They had a lot of fun. They used to have these fantastic parties and they would dance and listen to music and they would, people would come over and play musical instruments. I still love music. I go to a lot of concerts a year. Um, I, my mom and my sisters and my now 21 year old niece um, and I all went to Nashville before Christmas. We love music together. Um, 
And I have a lot of fun now with my friends. We, you know, in very much the spirit of that. So it's really important to be passionate about what you do, but it's also really, really important to realize that it's not the only thing about you. Um, mm -hmm. and, um, and that we can be, and I'm very serious about my work. Um, and I am also pretty not serious sometimes at home. So, and my parents gave me that gift too, to realize that you can be many people. So anyway, I can't speak enough or highly enough of them. They're amazing. Yes. Yes. They are amazing. And, uh, I heard you speak about your dad and how he defended you and, uh, and, and his girls, uh, and yeah. uh, <laughs> said that they can do as well or as much as men can and boys. Right. So I want to ask you about men in the legal mm. profession. Yes. Sure. Uh, and I want to ask you about women in the legal profession. So there is a pretty uh, stereotype uh, phrase that men are from Mars and women are from <laughs> Venus. Maybe uh, this phrase uh, has meaning, maybe it doesn't, but at least it symbolizes something. It symbolizes that there is there is a line between men and women and we have a lot of debates especially now about the relationship between um, the male part of society and the female part of society and the same thing goes about the profession so and um, i'm really curious about the split in the legal profession and um, i want you to tell me about your experience over the many years I would say 22 years, right? Uh, at learners and in the legal profession uh, about your experience of dealing with male lawyers and male culture. Is there such a thing as male culture in this profession? Is there such a thing as female culture in this profession? I know we're different in some things. And I know that I personally, for example, I, I, I constantly learn about other cultures, other countries, other people, and also women as a, as a group. You know, I think there is something to learn for men about women. Talk talk about that a little bit. Sure. So I think, you know, is there a male or female culture in the practice of law? I'm not sure that there is. I think there's an overarching patriarchy in society that women always have had to deal with, and that, um, and that should come as no surprise to anyone. Um, I'm always really hesitant to talk about... Um, there being kind of men in law and women in law. And that's because uh, certainly, and I don't know, I can't speak for men, but I can speak for myself as a woman. And I don't necessarily um, have the, I'm, I'm not part of a homogenous group of women. Um, and oftentimes when we talk about women, what we're talking about is we have this preconception about femininity and motherhood and women in the caretaker role, and how does that manifest itself in the practice of law? And that starts with perception that's that's what women bring to the practice of law. Women bring a lot of things to the practice of law. It also means that men aren't allowed to have those things. And so one of the things that I remember, and I give this example because women are always surprised when I say this. When I was um, when I gave birth to my first child, um, my intention was to take six months off work. I ended up taking seven because he was born um, eight weeks early. So I ended up taking seven months off work. And my husband, who is also, a, he's a government lawyer, also took six months off work. It was 2005, and that was relatively unheard of. Not me taking six months, him taking six months. It was important to him. He's actually was way better with babies than me, to be honest that was part of his nurturing and caretaking soul. Um, 
the only comment I had that was negative about that came from a woman who said to me, I can't believe you are giving up time with your child. And it was incredibly eye-opening to me that I was suddenly wound up with being not, I mean, of course I take motherhood seriously, but that somehow my decisions were going to be judged by that. And what I would say to women, the idea of women culture or female culture or male culture is that what we want is a culture where people feel like they can make choice. Um, I worry sometimes that men feel uh, that they can't take leaves or take care of their children because that's not the stereotypical role for them, which also then puts the reverse, you know, then, then puts pressure on women to take over that caretaking role. So we perpetuate it by our understanding and our belief that somehow we have to be within these molds and we're not all the same. Um, have I had bad experiences? Oh, Yes. Um, I've had bad experiences. I had uh, a man who commented, a male lawyer who commented after I left a discovery at 7 p.m. And I have to often say is after uh, enduring hours of him asking inane and uh, not very helpful questions of my client at 7 p.m. I said, we're done. I walked out and the next day I got a call from uh, my co-counsel who had sent an articling student to take notes who said, after you left, the art, he turned to the female articling student and said, that's why women shouldn't be able to practice law. They have to run home to their babies. Those attitudes, so that was in 2005, 2006, those attitudes existed then. Do they exist today in the profession? Of course they do. Um, I think we, we are doing a really good job of saying they shouldn't exist. We have a lot of work to do, but it's not because it's unique to the profession. It's because it's you know unfortunately endemic in society. Um, what do we do about it? There's a lot of work to be done. One of it is to have uh, women in leadership. I think that's very important. Um, and for that not to be performative. It, it, it's not just putting in women in leadership because that's a good thing to do. It's because they bring a different perspective and thoughtfulness to it, while also recognizing that we're not all the same. And, um, and that we need to give everybody opportunities to figure out what's best for them in their lives. Um, and, and so, you know, uh, there's, there's all kinds of things that still exist. We still do in our firm, a extraordinary women's event because we celebrate women and our, our firm has a long history of having women in leadership and doing well in, in respect to gender parity in our partnership in Toronto and in our office overall. Um, but you know, those things are some part of what we have to do. Um, some part of what we do is need to have hard discussions about what it is that we expect of one another in terms of support um, and moving the needle away from saying the primary female issue is this. Well, actually, we're all a little different and that's okay too. Wow. Lots to think about, <laughs> lots to digest. And I'm very serious about this and I hope uh, our listeners uh, are taking away similar feelings from this well first of all i understand that uh, women are different and this is probably the first principle that we should start with uh, we cannot uh, apply the same metrics to all women we cannot expect the same things from all women but on the other hand we uh, women also uh, uh, fight for their rights for example right <laughs> and and when they do and they have fought for their rights for decades centuries and when they do they 
represent represent themselves as a group. So I believe that yeah. there is a there is a difference between men and women, and I think that difference often is not in favor of men. Uh, <laughs> and I think that because of the bias over thousands of years when men you 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 mentioned the word patriarchy and the, the a bias arose over thousands of years where men simply got used to the idea that they were running things and that th this is a typical person that should be in charge then th this bias of course i think uh, led to an accumulation of errors just like you know uh uh, physiological errors or biological errors uh, or the accumulation leads to cancer eventually and uh, the organism dies right so in this respect um, I, I was wondering if you could share what men could learn from women from female lawyers what male lawyers could learn from them and not just obvious things like don't be an asshole uh, and don't say things like uh, some uh, male lawyers say but maybe um, things that uh, will be directly practical and directly useful in 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 uh, in a lawyer's job that men maybe physically are not capable of uh, wrapping their mind around because they don't have the experiences the life experiences that women have could you talk a little bit about that sure so one of the things you you said is that you know women have often fought and when they do they they fight as a unit and uh, what I would say to in respect of that is that women have had to fight and it's bloody exhausting. Um, and we lean on each other, even though that we're not a homogenous group, because it is tiring to do it on your own. And so um, I have not had to endure the fight that others have had because of my uh, good fortune in many parts of my life. Um, but that's something people need to walk away from saying like, you know, we can't keep on having to fight. Um, the other thing is we can't keep on having to fight for women because we've got in our profession a real need to fight for others. Uh, you know, I have I've said this publicly. I'm very happy um, that I'm a part of an all female leadership team. And I I am very, very proud of the fact that we have gender parity. But I'm not patting my back on the shoulder quite yet. We have a lot of work to do with respect to racialized lawyers. Um, and so when even we talk about men, and patriarchy. We are not talking about all men. And um, so we have work to do in that area as a profession. Um, our firm's starting to do that work, but you know what we're really doing? We're starting to have discussions about how to do the work because um, it's it's not easy um, and uh, we need to be doing it in a way that's meaningful and not just, you know, something that's a great tweet. Um, and I'm, I'm really happy about that, but it also exhausts me because the fight's been going on for a while. And, and I think sometimes we need to shift gears. That said, what can some women learn from us? You know what, if you believe all the stereotypes about women and some of this is true, um, you know, women, I, I find that one of the things that I do well, and maybe, you know, again, this is, this is a pat on the back, is that I genuinely am interested in people and I listen to people and I am a human being. So, you know, I am a little apologetic for getting emotional during your interview, but I'm not all that apologetic. Because the end of the day, I'm a human being with real emotions. And whether you are dealing with a per, an injured client in a personal injury matter or a corporation that's doing an M&A deal or a, you know, a corporation that's involved in litigation, there's humans involved. And listening to humans and understanding where they're coming from um, often has more of a personal element than what people may realize. And so 
that skill set of listening, um, I don't think is a unique feminine trait. But I think if you talk to people about what different what there are in terms of general differences between men and women, uh, women are good listeners. Part of that is because of a patriarchal society where we always were being told to listen and we're being told to. Um, now we actually have a voice as well, which I think is really, uh, really important. And, and it's important for me as a lawyer to be human. Uh, and I think, you know, um, we don't need to all crank out billable hours and be automatons either for our clients. Um, we need to be conscious of that. So I, I think that that's a, that those are kind of some of the traits. Um, I think as well, there's a vulnerability to that we are more willing to accept than others. Um, maybe not all of us again, but certainly um, I have been very candid whenever and asked me about what's happened in the course of my career to explain the ups and the downs and there's been downs. Um, I don't think men are given that same freedom to be vulnerable in their careers. And it's hard to get support and advance if you aren't able to identify the support that you need. And so I always say, and I like to go to talk to my male associates and say, are you okay with doing this? Do you need me to help you with this? How are, you know, um, and I, I confess I wasn't always very good at that. I'm getting better. Um, but that kind of, you know, being vulnerable so that you can get the support you need so that you can advance um, and, and also be a little less stressed, I think is something that women are better at than men, generally speaking, maybe not all men. Right. This is fascinating. You know, uh, you mentioned Twitter mm. and um, there was a discussion on Twitter today that I started, I admit, uh, and the discussion was about what litigators have in common. And one of the theories offered was that they have uh, one of the things that they have in common is uh, the narcissistic personality disorder. <laughs> you know what? I'm not a psychiatrist, so mm -hmm. I always admit my uh, ignorance. So I actually wasn't sure what it meant. Narcissistic personality disorder. I always thought narcissism was about, you know, me, 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 like in Seinfeld and that Seinfeld episode, loving myself and so on and so forth. But then I felt that this tweet really struck a chord and it had something right about it. Uh, and then I went to Google um, and I tried searching for the right disorder that mm -hmm. I felt that uh, a lot of litigators shared. And of course, this is a half joke, but there is some truth to it. And I searched uh, personality disorder, uh, no empathy. Oh, and the first, and I was wondering if, if there is such a personality disorder. And the first result was narcissistic personality disorder. So of course, uh, that theory uh, was exactly right about what I had in mind. So no empathy. It, uh, there is a disorder apparently in the manual of of mental disorder, something yeah. like that. Well, you would be familiar. Probably you had cases about it. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> yeah, maybe. So. Uh, you did a lot of med mail in, in your oh. uh, in your experience. Some of the hardest trials I know, uh, civil trials, are medical malpractice trials. So anyway, no empathy. Do you think um, lawyers have? Let's assume they have little empathy or less empathy than normal people. Do you think it's a strength? Maybe the historically society wanted lawyers to defend clients' best interests without much empathy for the opposing party? Because defending your client's best interests often involves hurting opposing parties, sometimes vulnerable opposing parties. 
Uh, do you think uh, the society has been interested in uh, selecting people with little empathy to be litigators because applying the law uh, was preferred to be a more of a dry process without much regard for feelings or for uh, mm -hmm. people who evoke feelings? What do you think about this whole thing? Well, you know, um, I have to say that when I talk to, I'm, I'm now going to go look at that Twitter and see who, who suggested that, because I actually think lawyers have a lot of empathy. And I'm, I am, and so certainly I think that perception of um, the television lawyer who can cross-examine everybody and seem to walk away and, and feel nothing about it. Um, I can understand that as being uh, true in some circumstances. I think that um, there might be circumstances in which in which you want to harden yourself a little bit because what you're doing is difficult and emotional uh, and that can cross um, different types of litigation. But what I would say is at the end of the day, and this is one of the things I say to all of my clients when we go to trial, the person who is the most important person in the room, the person you need to convince is a judge. The judge is human. So I can do the best cross-examination, but I better not cross-examine to the point that that judge is, is now feeling badly for the person I cross-examined. The judge is human. So if lawyers can't have empathy, and maybe you'd say, well, all judges start off as lawyers, so the judges don't have empathy either, but I don't believe that. I don't believe that. So you have to weigh um, your desire to, to beat everything into submission and cross-examination with the fact that you have an audience and you might think you did the best job possible, but what you think matters zero. It is what the judge thinks. And so I, I, I think you know, approaching it as it's best not to be, be empathetic. Um, maybe you don't want to have empathy, but you better be alive as to whether or not the person who actually makes the decision has empathy. Um, and, and you know, the other thing is, as I say, a lot of my clients make decisions that are not based on the law. They make decisions that are settled to settle based on what's in their corporate interests or what's in their personal interests. And sometimes in you know closely held companies, the personal interests and the corporate interests merge. And if you have no empathy and you can't understand that, you can't give good advice. So I can tell somebody they're going to win on the law, but I better understand where what other motivations they may have. Um, and so I think it's a, I think a well-rounded lawyer does, is suitably empathetic, um, mm -hmm. in my own view. If a lawyer, a litigator from uh, in, the, in at the height of his career 20, 30 years ago uh, traveled uh, through time in a time machine and uh, landed uh, in a courtroom 30 years from now or 20 years from now, what do you think he will see? And I'm saying he because most likely it was a he 20, 30 years ago. And they're fast forwarding 20, 30 years from now. And we're fast forwarding 30 years, 20, 30 years from now, when you will be uh, a great legend of uh, Canadian litigation. <laughs> uh, I love how you keep on mentioning that. So maybe you'll make it true. Um, so I, I think that, you know, we just had this discussion the other night about the fact that if you, you know, that in the first 20 or 30 years of someone like Earl's career, very little changed. And now technology is moving yeah. so quickly that everything is changing. Um, so uh, first of all, I don't even know if they're going to be in a courtroom. Yes. I think that um, we're in 
we're part and parcel now where we do everything virtually, um, that the demands on the system might be such that that continues. Um, and I certainly don't think they'll be surrounded by papers and highlighters. Uh, that's that for sure. I think that, that the current use of technology will, will only grow and expand. I'm hoping that the, the person who decides their cases, um, and I say I hope because change takes a really long time and 20 and 30 years can pass by in the blink of an eye. But I'm hoping that the person who decides their cases looks like the society that they represent. I don't think we have that yet. We're working on it. But change takes a really long time. So I'm hoping that's the case. Uh, and in 20 and 30 years, bless them, please not be wearing a black robe. Um, so <laughs> I realize I might be alone in that. Uh, but I'm happy to 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 give up my my robes um, any day now. So. Yeah, I uh, I am neutral to robes. Uh, I prefer to be without a robe, but I'll follow the crowd on this one. <laughs> this is not the revolution that I want to start, but for Fair sure I, I I hear you on this. You know what, Cynthia? Uh, this has been such an amazing interview, and uh, you made me think a lot. And I often people often make me think, but you also made me feel, and that's oh, much harder <laughs> actually. Uh, to make me <laughs> feel you. something. Uh, thank you. And thank you for your generosity. Thank you for lifting the veil on uh, on your day, on, on, the, on the life of a file at your firm. This is really practical. This is really valuable, especially for an army of young lawyers who will never work at a law firm, who are now graduated, graduating law schools and starting their own practices. This is the new uh, reality. And uh, I talked about that with George Strathy, Honorable George Strathy, uh, and uh, he made some suggestions. But I think when lawyers like you lift the curtain on their practices, on their daily routines, on their procedures and systems, that's training not just for your associates, that's training also for all associates out there, even those who are associates of themselves, solo practitioners starting the own practice so thank you so much for that oh, thank you thank you so much for lifting the veil on your own inner world on your heart on your soul and 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 sharing your feelings with us this is really precious and we don't have enough of that everybody is is rock solid and perfect and uh presents yeah. a an appearance of a an ideal universal soldier <laughs> so Usual, yeah, well, one, one thing I say to people is that I am, uh, first of all, my I'm an open book. And secondly, I am who I am. And two, when we talk about, you know, what, what does my day look like? Um, my day looks like Cynthia Keel gets up in the morning um, every day. And so if what I would say to people who are practicing on their own is stay true to yourself. This, you know, um, be passionate about what you do, whatever it is. Uh, make sure you're doing stuff that makes you happy. Uh, and maybe that's maybe your work doesn't make you as happy, but it funds whatever in life, the rest of your life makes you happy. Um, but but don't lose yourself. It's, yeah. you know, it, I, I think that clients like the fact that they know that they get me, not somebody I think they want to see. And I, I'm hoping that 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 other people take take that seriously, makes it so that I actually really have loved the last 25 years of my career. Wow. 
Thank you so much, Cynthia. You're it's welcome. been a great interview and I want to thank you from the bottom of my heart. Thank you so much. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been a pleasure.